Good morning again. If you will turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians, the letter of Colossians. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Colossians. Just kidding. I was thinking about as Steve was up here with the singers. They need a name. We think about Steve and the glory singers. What do you think? We get name. One of those old southern gospel groups from the 50s. Um, let me get my... Ah, oh, perfect. So we've been in the book of Colossians. Now for... Uh, this will be our sixth, sixth sermon in the series. And we've been discussing the book of Colossians. We've been discussing Paul's writing to these believers. Their pastor, Epaphras, has journeyed all the way from Colossae, which is a city in the Lycus Valley, about 100 miles or 200 kilometers due uh, east of the city of Ephesus, which lies on the coast of modern-day Turkey. Now, Epaphras is making the long journey to meet with the Apostle Paul, who's in prison in Rome. And he's made this journey because there's been false teachers that have come into the church. And now Epaphras needs help. He needs help refuting these false teachers. And there's different aspects to these false teachers' doctrine. Now, it's interesting in God's inspiration that we don't know specifically what this teaching was. We have a general idea based on Paul's response. But the great thing about God's Word is that in Paul's response, we can refute many different types of heresies because Paul brings it all the way back to the glory, supremacy, and sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone. Now, what we've been talking about over the last, especially the last few weeks, We've been going through verses 15 through 20, and we talked about how Christ is supreme over His creation. We did that in verses 15 through 17, and then from 18 to 20, we discussed how Christ is supreme over the new creation. So Paul begins this great section, or begins this letter, first of all, by drawing their attention to the supremacy, the glory, the the creative ability of Jesus Christ. So there's no doubt that if he has the ability to create all things, to sustain all things, and he's head of the church, that he has the ability to be sufficient for individuals in their lives, right? If he has that kind of power, there's no doubt in his power for you as an individual. You don't need to add other things to your faith in Christ. You don't need to add other things to understand who God is and his duties that he requires for your life. And that's what the false teachers were doing. They were saying you had to have special knowledge, or you had to follow special traditions, or you had to influence, or had to, excuse me, had to influx philosophy into your theological system. You had to had to perform a certain uh, mantra or rite in order to gain God's acceptance. They were adding things to the faith. And so Paul's writing this letter to combat that general heresy, that general false teaching. That was in the church. And that's what we've been going through, especially the last few times as we've been talking about the supremacy of Christ. Now, what I want to look at this morning, we're going to be talking about the hope of the gospel, as I've just titled it here, this sermon this morning. And we're going to be talking about, basically, Paul ends that glorious section about Christ and His supremacy over all things in verse 20 by speaking about reconciling all things to Himself. All right. Well, Paul says that's not, that's not good enough. It's not good enough he just reconciles all things. He brings it home to this local body of believers. Because not only has God reconciled all things through Christ, but He's reconciled these believers and He's reconciled you. Now, I have a dear friend of mine. He's a, he's a brother in Christ, and we've known each other for many, many years. And it's a sad story, um, but he allowed himself to become dominated and enslaved by alcohol. His wife traveled a lot for her job and, and he at home decided he was going to start drinking like he used to do before he was a believer. And uh, this continued. Um, he lived farther away from me. Uh, unbeknownst a lot of this to me until after the fact. Um, but one night his neighbors had a party and in an inebriated state, uh, he committed adultery on his wife. Now he, he confessed his sin to me a couple days later and deeply distressed about it. Um, the truth came out to his wife uh, before he could tell her. And in the course of that, that situation, um, they became in, in, uh, estranged, as you can imagine. His wife was deeply hurt. She became angry and bitter, and she refused any kind of reconciliation. 
Uh, my friend, wallowing in guilt, he, he refused to take the initiative to try to win her back. That's a hard, hard time for both of them. Um, they, it was hard for him to face his sin and to face what he lost. And this is how the relationship, unfortunately, stands today. We, my wife and I pray for them. I, I speak to him regularly. She's kind of cut us all off. There is, there's an estrangement there, uh, an alienation, and there's no reconciliation between the two. Well, for, for biblically speaking, for us, sin always separates. Sin always kills, right? Sin always separates and sin always kills. Sin separated my friend and his wife. It killed their relationship. Sin is what separates man, what estranges man, what alienates man from God. Men and women cannot be reconciled to God without sin being dealt with. Man is separated from God because of his sinful state. You see, modern sensibilities refuse to call people's behaviors what they really are. Remember, truth in its basic definition is reality as God sees it, right? We can, we can redefine any and everything, but truth is how God defines things, right? We, we can call it self-esteem in our society, but in reality we're talking about pride, right? We can call a couple living together, but in reality it's fornication, we can call it an alternate lifestyle, but in reality it's perversion, right? And so on and so on. In Western societies, we, we don't want to talk about sin. Mankind, we're not a victim of social misfortune or passive captives to a genetic lottery. You see, man is born a sinner and is responsible for what he does and what he says and what he is. All men and women are guilty before God, and as such, we are separated from Him. Paul makes this assumption, right? Do you need reconciliation with someone if you're, separ- if you're not separated from them? No. If you're, if you're already together, able to have fellowship, you don't need reconciliation. So Paul makes this assumption. But praise God He didn't leave us in this state. He has reconciled all things to Himself in verse, in verse uh, 20 of chapter 1, and He's been speaking about Christ's supremacy. Today, we're going to be looking at how he gets specific. We're going to be looking at the fact that this sentence here, verses 21 through 23, is one sentence in the Greek. And the key to this sentence is, he has now reconciled you in verse 22. And we're going to be looking at that reconciliation today and how our hope is in the gospel. We're going to be looking at four things this morning. We're going to look at four items. We're looking at your past state, your present condition, your future destiny, and your present duty. So let's go ahead and look at the text, and then we'll get started. Verse 21 of chapter 1 of Colossians. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death, in order to present you before Him holy and blameless beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moving away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So the first thing that we're going to talk about this morning, we're going to talk about your past state, verses 121. It's really small up there. The first, state, the first thing we're going to talk about is you're estranged from God. You're separated from God. Verse 21, it says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds... When you were not a believer before you came to Christ, and anyone in this world, they are estranged, they are alienated, they are separated from the fellowship, they're excluded from intimacy with God Almighty. Right? Psalm 58.3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. So one of the things you could say is that if you were estranged, you were born this way. It's always amusing when I, when I hear homosexuals and, and others in general, not just single out one group, say, well, I was born this way. Well, you were. You were born a sinner. 
And you've been given over to that depraved state as an aspect of God's judgment. He's given you over to more and more sin. He's refused to help restrain the depravity in your hearts. So you are born this way. You're born a sinner. Now you make choices. We're all not as depraved as we possibly could be. God puts restraining agents in our life. Family members, other believers were the salt and the life. Society, government. Government's a huge restrainer of sin. The purpose of government is to punish evildoers and protect the innocent. Peter says this in 1 Peter, right? So God puts things in our society, in our world, government to restrain the evil in the heart of man, right? So, but we're born this way. Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. So sin always separates, Right? We're born separated from God, alienated, estranged from God. Right? This, is, this, was, this is their state, all unbelievers. This was your state before Christ. There's nothing in an unbeliever that will appeal them to God, that will allow them to have an intimate relationship with God. They can't change who they are. A leopard cannot change their spots and become a giraffe. Right? You can't change an animal, who it is. It's born that way. And that's how we all were born. Ephesians 2 talks about this so well. He says, we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Everyone is born to a life of sin. It's hard to think about, but little children are born sinners. I was preaching on Ephesians 2 at a church one time, and, and, I, and I got to this, that, this topic in this section, and, uh, and I made this statement, um, kids are... Uh, little vipers in dirty diapers. And, uh, and I had a lady in the back wail on me. Ah! He just, I guess he had never even thought about it. And um, I just, I'll never forget that, that particular uh, preaching time, every that sermon. But that's, that's true. Kids are little vipers in dirty diapers. Um, I see Jenna over there with a little one. I remember my little one. She's now three and a half. And man, it's very quickly they learn how to manipulate you. Very quickly... I mean, I didn't teach my daughter to lie. It's like, Addie, did you do this? No, Dada. Did you, did you break this egg? Oh, no, Dada, and the egg's on the floor right beside her, right? Did you eat this chocolate? No, Dada, and there's like chocolate all around their mouths. You know, we, we don't teach them to lie. They're born that way. They're sinners, right? They need the gospel. They need reconciliation. And as parents, that's, it's a pedis on us. To teach our kids. We teach our kids the law of God. Teach our kids about God's character. Teach them how they're sinners and how they need to know Christ. Right? We give them the gospel. So mankind on his own is a sinner. He's born that way. He cannot change his state. Right? So not only were we we born that way, but we liked it. Right? It's not like, oh, we're born this way and we're, oh, woe is us. We can't, we can't approach God. No, mankind likes it. John 3, 19 and 20. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and he does not come into the light and does not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Right? Ephesians 2, 3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Right? You, you hear this thing often, well, I can, I can love the sinner and hate the sin. Right? Now, in one sense, we are to love sinners. Right? We're, we're to love them enough to share the truth of God with them, right? We love them enough to be telling them that, hey, if you run in that burning building, you're going you're gonna to burn. If you're, if you're not willing to repent, you're going to burn forever in hell, right? That's, that's mercy, right? That's love, right? And we can do it in a way that shows love and demonstrates love. But in one sense, that, that saying is kind of a fallacy because you can say, well, love the sinner and hate the sin. You're separating the sin from the person. In other words, you're saying that they're only guilty of, of sin because they do sinful things. Right? A thief first covets in his heart before he actually commits the act. Right? The adulterer lusts in his heart before he ever commits the act. Right? He's an adulterer at heart. Right? 
homosexual is, is a sinner in his heart before he ever commits the act, right? So you can't disconnect the sin from the person, right? That's, that's actually a Roman Catholic fallacy, right? They would say that you're naturally righteous and it's the sins you commit that separate you from God. But that's not a biblical view of sin. Biblical view of sin is you're, you're born a sinner. In your, in your heart, you're a sinner. You're innately a sinner. Your thoughts and your desires are sinful. They're corrupted by your sin, your reason. And then your actions overflow from that. Right? So we can love the sinner. God loves the sinner and hates the sinner. And that's the thing we forget. We think about God in human terms. Right? For us, we, it's hard for us to hate somebody and love somebody at the same time. God can do both. Right? God loves the sinner so much that he what? Sin is only begotten son. Anyone shall believe in him shall have eternal life. But he also hates the sinner. He hates the sin. And he's separated from that person by their sinful state. Without reconciliation, any and everyone who dies in their sin will be separated and continue to be separated from God for all eternity. Sin always separates. Sin always kills. Men love it. People choose to do sin. They love sin. Ephesians 2 says that when when you're alienated from God, you're without hope and without God. You see, we were a born sinner and we loved it. We didn't want to take initiative to know God. But not only were we were estranged, he says your enemies in your mind. Look at verse 21. He said, You're hostile in mind. You're hostile. Word there for hostile is, is hostility. It's, it's another word for it's translated enemy, right? Interesting thing about our minds is, is we were in the dark and we, we had this, this hostility, this shaking our fist at God. So we, we loved our sin. We were born in sin. We loved it. We loved the darkness. We were hostile in our mind. Ephesians 4, 17, 18 says, Walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their hearts. The Gentiles, in other words, those who don't know God, they live in the futility of their minds. Whatever, whenever they think about God, is futile. It's like the old Star Trek, resistance is futile. It's futile, right? They can't understand God, right? 1 Corinthians 2 affirms this. A natural man, or a man who does it, have the Holy Spirit, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. A person without the Holy Spirit cannot understand the things of the Word of God. They're foolishness. I was reading a blog article the other day, and I was just looking at the comments. It was was an interesting article, but the comments, one of the persons at the bottom said that, oh, you know, these Christians, they wouldn't sound so foolish if they would just jettison this whole, like, I believe in a six-day creation. I just kind of laughed. You think about 1 Corinthians, the foolish, right, that the wisdom of God is foolishness to men, right? They, they, They won't accept it. You wouldn't accept God's truth. You were darkened. You, can't, you wouldn't be able to understand it without a work of God in your heart. That's the whole point about 1 Corinthians 2, that whole section. Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit coming into your life, illuminating your mind so that you can understand the things of the Spirit of God. Right? And not only that, isn't it just a one-time illumination? Paul actually makes that comment that, that the Spirit of, Spirit of God illuminates our minds continually to help us to understand truth so that we can in turn apply it to our lives and know who God is and what is His demands for our life. So you are enemies in your mind. I was talking to one of the elders at the past church I got to be good friends with. His name was Jim. And he was going through cancer treatments. Um, and he, it was some chemo stuff. And one of the things he told me, I asked him, like, well, how are you feeling? And you know, how are you going? Tell me about these treatments that you're going through. One of the things he said over and over, he says, you know, I feel like I'm in a fog feel like, you know, there's things that, I say, I recognize people, but when I start thinking about like memories and events, it's like it's in the back of my mind, and it's clouded, and I can't understand it. And it was the chemo. And I started thinking about how, how that is for the unbeliever, right? 2 Corinthians 4, 
speaks about the gospel being veiled, that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light, the glory of the gospel. So not only in your mind are you you darkened and you can't understand and you will not accept, but add further insult to injury, Satan is blinding unbelievers so they cannot see the gospel. They cannot see the light. And Paul actually said, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. But then he goes farther and he says, but praise be to God. Right? That God illuminates. God gives light. Brings light in the darkness. Romans 1.18 is a great passage. It talks about men in their natural state. They suppress the truth. And in all their reasoning, and all their reasoning, in fact, I'm going to turn over there. I don't want to just misquote it. Romans 1, 18. It's a, it's a great passage. You guys, when you think about the natural state of man, you want to think about where mankind really is. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So man in his natural state suppresses truth. He said, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of all the excuse me, excuse me, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that men without excuse. In other words, they can look around and they can see God's attributes. His powers. They look at this, we look at this world as believers and we say, Praise be to God, how, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We sing the songs for the beauty of the earth. We sing and we look and we see God's power demonstrated in the heavens. A man looks at that. And what does he do? Verse 21 Even though he knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So they looked around and they speculated, right? Rather than accepting, hey, there's something out there that created this world that became futile in their speculations, right? They came up with all sorts of ideas about how this world is created, through evolutionary processes, or as the, the Greeks would say, pantheon of gods, other religions. You know, you just kind of poofed into existence, right? You look at every group of individuals on this earth. There is some religion or religious activity involved, right? Because there's a vacancy in their heart. Now, they all have some idea about creation, right? There's God's truth, and their ideas are futile speculations, right? So not only are we, we estranged, but there, we're enemies in our minds, right? Our minds are, are part of, are influenced by our sin. But not only is, are we born that way, not only are our minds corrupt and darkened and veiled, but we're also engaged in evil deeds. Because from what's in the mind, what's in the heart, in the Hebrew it's heart, in the... In the uh, in the Greek, it's mind. It's the same idea as the seat of will, seat of cognition, the seat of decision. Matthew 15, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulterers, for, adulterers fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. And then 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says that those that, that practice those things will not inherit the kingdom of God. From the mind comes all sorts of evil. And that's kind of what I was going back before, saying before, that and you can't disconnect the sinner from the sin. When I was in, I was in uh, Bible college, and I was just learning this. And I still had this false mentality of kind of, oh, well, you have to commit sin to be a sinner. You're, you're not a sinner unless you're, you do the sin, right? And that was, you know, it was a totally, totally uh, heretical, uh, wrong idea, and I was still learning. And I, my, my buddies, they played a joke on me, and they were calling me, and they were like, oh, you guys have a room to rent. And I was like, yeah, we're renting a room. They're like, yeah, but they're like, I'm not a, I, I, uh, I don't do any, any homosexual acts, but, you know, I'm a homosexual. And I'm starting to argue. I'm like, well, you're, are you really? You know, if you're not doing anything. And they were just, they were kept, kept digging into me. And they were basically trying to help me to see that it's not about what you do, but it's who you are. 
And I'm sitting there arguing with him, and I'm like, no, 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 you're not doing anything, you're not homosexual, and, and, uh, but, you know, praise be to God, through, through my, my brothers and um, friends' help, they helped me to see, like, hey, look, that's the wrong idea that you have, right? Because what, what we do always comes out from inside, right? From the mind comes all sorts of evil, right? The heart and the mind. What you are is what you think, and what you think is what you do. Right? Remember, sin always separates and sin always kills. So this is your, this is your past state. Okay? And then Paul moves on in verse 22. He doesn't just leave it there. Praise God. God just doesn't leave us there. Right? What a, what a terrible state to be left in. What a terrible state unbelievers are in this world currently. All right? Paul continues and he says, Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So your present state, okay? So your, your present state is you're, you're reconciled, okay? So you're, you're reconciled to God. It means you, you were estranged, you were alienated, but now you have fellowship and intimacy, right? 2 Corinthians 5, 17-19 speak about God reconciling us to Himself. And then not only did He reconcile us to Himself, but He gives us the ministry of reconciliation. It kind of goes to that old thing, you know, if somebody's starving and we're a beggar and you find food, wouldn't you want to tell others, other beggars, where to find food? Right? Or if a, a building is burning and you see somebody wanting to walk into a burning building, what do you do? You don't let them walk into the burning building. You say, hey, look out. You go in there, you'll perish. That's the idea with the ministry of reconciliation. It's, it's a love that we show for those around us, that we care enough to warn them of the impending disaster that awaits them, right? The great thing is, is that you don't have to convince somebody into the kingdom, right? Because they, if they have, right, they're born a sinner, right? And they're born estranged, right? And their, their mind is darkened. And on their own, they, they can't speculate into heaven. They can't speculate and come up with what the truth is, it takes a work of God in their heart to illuminate them. So as believers, we're to be responsible, right? So we're ambassadors of Christ. Well, Christ has reconciled us. He has he's brought us into a right relationship with God. The second thing is, He has reconciled us through Himself. He says, in His fleshly body, verse 22, through death. Now, first of all, he says through his fleshly body. Jesus limited himself. Can you think about that for a second? The creator of all things, who's supreme over all things. Philippians 2, he what? He humbled himself, took on the likeness of man, and was obedient to death. He, he who created all things and holds all things, sustains all things, became a part of his lowly creation. Right? Walked among us. Lived a perfect life, totally in obedience to the law died on a cross for our sins, and then rose again on the third day and ascended to heaven and is at the right hand of the Father. You see, Paul makes this point here because the part of the false teaching that we'll get into a little bit later is they were denying that Jesus came to earth and lived as a, as a man. It's, it's a heresy. I mentioned it before. It's called docetism. And if you'd like to know more about it, Jordan would be glad to tell you after. Uh, he just took a, a Christology test. He loves it. Um, but Dostism basically says that Jesus just, he, the Spirit of God kind of fell upon the man Jesus. He lived a while, and then the Spirit of God came out, and the man Jesus died, right? I can't emphasize this enough. Jesus Christ was 100% God, 100% man. He wasn't 50 50, right? He's both, right? Fully God and fully man. And Paul's making this point here. He said he had a fleshly body. God puts things in Scripture on purpose. Right? He's drawing attention to the incarnation because just in the very fact that he had a fleshy body, it refutes some of the false teaching. Right? It wasn't that he just appeared to be a man. He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't a good person. He was the Son of God. So we have the incarnation. Jesus humbled himself. We also have reconciliation through death. Now it's interesting because in verse 20, it says that uh, he's reconciled all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And then here in verse 22, he says that 
reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Now, Paul is, is drawing two different pictures here. He's talking about the sacrificial system, right? In verse 20, he's talking about the sacrifice or, or the blood being poured out of the lamb for the sacrifice for sins. Jesus is called the Lamb of God, right? Here we're talking about a, a substitution. Christ died in our place. So if man is estranged from God, and they are, right? There's nothing that man can do to approach God because he's depraved. He's born a sinner. He loves his sin. His, his mind is in enmity, enmity. It's hostile to God. And then his actions are sinful, Right? There's nothing he can do. It takes a, a work of God to reach down and pull man out of that muck, that deadness. Okay? But he reconciled. He, he did that. Christ did that by dying in a higher place. Dying in man's place. Man cannot approach God. So God poured out his wrath, the wrath that man justly deserved. Why? Because we, we loved our sin. We hate God. Right? We deserve the wrath of God. But God poured out His wrath upon the Son and He reconciled men and women to Himself through the sacrifice of the Son. Now, I love Romans, Romans 5. Let's over there for a second. Romans 5, verses 9 through 11. It's a great section. It says, Much more then, having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved... For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through His death or through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, are we saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. So we're enemies of God, but God reconciled us. One of the things that is interesting, when you start thinking about Paul's picture here, he's drawing a picture of the Levitical system. Now, I know you guys love Leviticus. Some of you read in your devotions, your quiet times. Everybody always goes to the book of Leviticus, right? As we said, Leviticus. I had a professor always used to say it like that. You know, I know there's, the old expression goes, you know, there's safety in numbers. But I, I personally prefer Leviticus myself. So, uh, there you go. I'm here all night, don't worry. So, Leviticus, the great thing about Leviticus is the first 15 chapters, God is giving prescriptions of how a, a sinful people are to be reconciled to a holy God. All right? He's dealing with atonement. Now, this atonement wasn't a permanent thing. In fact, when you get to chapter 16 in Leviticus, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, they had to do it every year. Right? And it wasn't good going forward. It was only good to cover the sin temporarily in in the past, right? It was a renewing, a, a persistent sacrifice they had to do. It wasn't until the Lamb of God was sacrificed, Jesus, that we no longer have to have a persistent sacrifice for sin. But it's interesting, when I was looking at Leviticus, and, and Paul draws this out here because he's making an allusion to the sacrificial system, I started looking at what was involved. When you think about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, all work would cease. In fact, there's penalties that if you work or engage in anything other than solemn repentance on that day, you could be kicked out of the fellowship of Israel. It was that serious. They were dead serious about it. God was dead serious, right? He was so dead serious that when, uh, when Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, went before the Lord with strange fire, God killed them on the spot. Can you imagine Aaron going in for this first day of atonement, knowing that he had to go into the Holy of Holies and his sons had, had died less than six months before? Because they didn't handle God in the proper way that He prescribed, right? So God's teaching these people what it means to be reconciled. This is a huge picture. So the, the priest comes in, after, after all work has ceased, the priest comes in and he makes atonement, first of all, a sacrifice for himself and his family. Because he's dirty. can't go before God yourself if you're not clean yourself. So he makes, he makes uh, atonement for himself. Then he makes ritual atonement... For the holy place itself, because it's become dirty because of the iniquity and uncleanness of the people of Israel. 
We're talking about Leviticus 1611. Then, once a year, this is all part of the same day, and only once a year, he makes his entrance into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for his house and all of Israel. And he, what he does is he sacrifices a goat and he sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat above of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. You guys have seen Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark? The Ark's there. In the Holy of Holies. And God in His glory appeared above, right above the angels. Right? So Moses is, Moses, Aaron is walking in and there's the Shekinah glory of God staring him back in the face. You better believe that he's probably a little fearful. Right? Especially remember what happened to his sons. So he sacrifices the goat and he sprinkles the blood on the altar for his sins and on for, the, for the blood for the nation of Israel. Now, one thing you need to remember is, is when, when they would kill a goat, they would slice his throat and the blood would pour out, right? Now, in this particular case, only Aaron could see this because they're doing it in the holy place, which is the central part of the tabernacle. And other sacrifices, when they sacrifice for sin, like the Passover, the people would be able to see that. Now, kind of our Western sensibilities, you slit, a, slit an animal's throat and you watch it bleed out. It's kind of a painful thought, Right? Watching the animal gasping as the blood is pouring out. The picture there is is a picture of that's the death, that's the death that you deserve because of your sin. You were to be that goat because sin always separates and sin always kills, and you were the one that should be dying there on that altar. But instead of you, this goat is having its live blood poured out to cover your sin. And ultimately, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ Himself, on a cross had His blood poured out. Right? But His was not a passive thing. He willingly gave Himself up as a sacrifice for us. So Aaron takes that and he sprinkles it on the altar. And the climax, and right, so it's one sacrifice, but it takes two goats to feel this picture that God's trying to give to the Israelites. So he sacrifices the goat, and then there's also another goat. It's called the scapegoat, right? The term is entered our language as a scapegoat, right? The scapegoat would come in and, and Aaron would place his hand on this goat and he would confess all the sins of the nation of Israel. And then he would take the goat out of the tabernacle and hand it to a guy. Didn't say who the guy is. And the guy would take the goat and he would carry it outside the camp into the wilderness and they would let it go. And it's a picture of God's forgiveness of sin as all the sins are placed on the goat and the goat goes out into wilderness and God remembers the sin no more. Right? You see how this points to Christ, right? And this is what Paul's talking about here when he says that, verse, he says in verse 20, he says that Christ has made peace through the blood of his cross and here in his fleshly body through death. He's, talking, he's drawing a picture through the, the sacrificial system. Right? Paul would have known this stuff hand over fist. He's a Pharisee, right? The Jews would have done countless sacrifices, and they still do sacrifices for sin because they did and they have not accepted Jesus Christ as the one and only sacrifice for sin, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To quote John the Baptist, See, Jesus was our sacrifice. He bore the penalty for our sins. The wrath of God was poured upon Him. He bled out for us. He was also our scapegoat. He bore our sins and our shame. And God remembers our sins no more. When you think about the Levitical system, it was a system that showed God's grace. We don't think about it that way, Right? Because God's teaching them that He wanted a relationship. He wanted to be reconciled with them. But there's something in the way and that's sin. And He set up the Levitical system to show them how to be in fellowship with Him and to point towards a future all-encompassing sacrifice as Jesus Christ. So our present condition is reconciliation. Paul continues and he says, look, you also have a future destiny. A future destiny. If you look down in verse 22, he says, In order to present you before him holy and blameless beyond reproach. Right? So he presents you holy. Now this is, this is a presentation. Another word for presentation is an offering. 
Right? You see how this kind of the sacrificial picture kind of is still here. He's presenting you, Jesus, Jesus has reconciled you to present you as an offering to God. And bring you an offering to God, holy, first of all. It's interesting, positionally, we are holy ones. The word for saints is holy ones, right? We all are set apart. The word for holy in its basic sense means set apart, different. God is holy, holy, holy. He is very different. He's set apart from His creation. If we're saints, we've been set apart for God's use. We're no longer common. We're uncommon. And we're to be used like the items in the tabernacle, items in the temple for God's use alone. We're holy ones. And then we're, we're in the process, so we positionally, we are saved, positionally we are saints, but then we're in the process of becoming holy. 1 Peter 1, 14-16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to your former lusts and your ignorance, but like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And, Paul, and Peter there is quoting Leviticus 19. Okay? It's consistent. Old Testament, New Testament. We are to be God's people. We are to be holy. We are to become holy. It's interesting the word in Greek there is be. It's, it's genomai. It's become. It's become through a process. We can't one day say, hey, I'm entirely sanctified. I'm entirely without sin. Right? Until we, Well, we will when we die. But on this earth while we live, we will not be holy fully. It's a process where we become, what? More holy, more like Christ. Sort of holy. Not only would it be holy, but to be unblemished. You see the kind of the seal, the idea of the sacrifice here. The word it's in the Greek it's the word for unblemished, it's translated blameless as well. Right? It means without defect. Paul is continuing this sacrificial idea. Without defect means morally without faults. That's God's goal for his people. Right? Ephesians 1:4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to that he would that we would be holy and blameless, or without blemish before Him. Right? So we prove ourselves. Philippians 2, so that we prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. James 1, 27, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Romans 12, 1 says, Offer your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. We're, we're to be that sacrifice that's unblemished, that's not become stained. If you can imagine you're wearing a, a white jacket or a white robe, and every sin that you sin after you're forgiven by Christ, it just dirties that and soils that robe. Right? But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. You see, when we sin post-believing in Christ, we destroy what? Sin separates. Sin always destroys. Sin separates us from our proper fellowship with the Lord. Right? So we're to be unblemished. We're to be blameless. We're also to be unaccusable. Or, or another way to put it is beyond reproach. It's a legal term that somebody can't even bring an accusation, accusation against you. Right? 1 Peter 2.12 says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, you may get slandered, and you may get persecuted, but your character, your behavior, should be unaccusable or beyond or beyond reproach. Because we know from Romans 1 that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That, that Christ is not going to accuse you. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. right? But you should live a life that is unaccusable. Right? You think about it this way. We're, we're like, we're like a, a beautiful flower. You pick a flower, whatever flower you like. You plant it in the ground. And it's a budding seed that awaits for the glorious bloom of the Lord's return. And He will present us to the Father in all our beauty, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. What a glorious day that's going to be. And then finally, Paul says, look, 
We've talked about what you were. We talked about who you are. We talked about where you're going. Now let's talk about your present duty. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So Paul says, if you continue. So one of the things he's talking about here is his, the if there is a, is a first class conditional in the Greek. Ooh, that's impressive, I know. But first class, it means that it has the idea of assume to be true. Paul is assuming these believers are going to continue, right? He's assuming that, that these people, because he's, he's heard of their faith in Christ Jesus in verse 4 and their love for all the saints. So he, he's, a, he's assuming that they're going to continue. But the idea is that if you are a believer, you will continue in the faith. I knew this guy at Bible college. Seemed to be on fire for the Lord. Love the Lord, love to do love evangelism. Seemed to have it all put together. Uh, he actually joined a friend of mine's church, and um, everything seemed great for a while. But then, then this guy, he decided that he loved the world, loved the things of the world. It, it, it was a slow process. Uh, we didn't really know what was going on, but one day he just walked away. And when we approached him, he said, you know what, I don't believe any of that stuff. He loves, he loves the lust of the flesh, loved to endure and indulge in the lust of the flesh, right? Left his wife, left everything, didn't care, right? So all of that all along was just false. He was a little bit excited for a little while, and he's walked away. He's an apostate now. He lives like it. If you're a believer, time will demonstrate your faith, right? You will continue to live and walk with the Lord, you think about Luke 8, Luke 8 is a great passage when you start thinking about, um, start thinking about people who hear the gospel. And in, in Luke 8, verse 11, Jesus, he basically gives the parable and then he, he explains the parable to his disciples when they started questioning him. In verse 11 of Luke 8, he says, Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard... And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they will not believe and be saved. And then those on the rocky shore are those when they hear and receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a little while. And then in a time of temptation, they fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And they go on their way. They, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. And they bring no fruit. And then the seed in the good soil are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold fast to it and bear fruit with perseverance. In other words, they continue, right? Jesus was saying in John 8 as well that if you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine. And a lot of people quote this, and the truth will set you free, right? True believers will always continue. They will continue. And Peter says, what are you continuing in? He says, you're continuing in the faith. The article is there. This is the faith, once and all, giving to the saints. This is apostolic teaching. Right? Even in 2 Peter 3.16, Peter actually says that Paul's letters are Scripture. He affirms, another apostle affirms Peter's, sorry, another apostle, Peter affirms Paul's writings are Scripture. Jude 3 says, the faith which was once and all delivered to the saints. This is the faith, historic faith that we believe in. We will, believers, you will continue to the end if you are a believer. It's not your perseverance, it's not the continuing itself, it's not the profession that saves you. I knew people in, in, in college, I knew people in, in, um, in children's Bible camp that they made a profession, and they always look back and said, hey, I made that profession, I'm a believer. And then they live their lives however they want to live them. And they say, well, I was saved, and once saved, always saved. That means I can do whatever I want, I can live however I want, because it doesn't matter, I made that profession. You see, their faith is in their profession and not in Jesus Christ. Their assurance is in that one moment where I said I was a believer, and I am a believer, and I can do whatever I want to do. Right? So, for all of you, the question, first of all, is evaluate yourselves, right? 
Don't place your assurance on just one-time event. Are you walking with the Lord? All right? Philippians 1.6 says, He who began to work in you will see it to completion. Place your faith in Christ and demonstrate that faith by continuing in obedience. Continuing is the test. Somebody says, well, how do you know such and so? How do you know Phil's a believer? Well, he continues in the faith. He's a believer, right? Now, I don't know his heart. In 10 years, 10 years from now, if he decides and walks away, then this way it demonstrates he wasn't really of us, right? But you walk with the faith. You walk with other believers in fellowship. Hebrews says, don't neglect the fellowship. Right? We grow together. So not only explained, and he describes it. And he says, look, he says, don't... Um, he says, sorry, continue in the faith, firmly establish, steadfast, and not move away from the hope. So firmly establish, it's a passive thing. God gives the basis for belief and practice. If you're established in something, you're building the foundation. We have the foundation of the Word of God. You don't have to go anywhere else for it, right? That's how you're firmly established. You're firmly established by, by just soaking up the truth of Scripture, through the preaching, through your own reading, through Bible studies, you're soaking up, you're firmly established, and you're steadfast. He said, you're fixed in your purpose, you're immovable and inward conviction. Now, you want to be a perseverer, you want to be an overcomer, you want to continue, then not only be firmly established by the Word, then fix your heart in purpose, be immovable, knowing that the Bible is sufficient for your life. And then he says, not moving away. An idea of not moving away is either by personal desire or outside influence. Because remember, he's writing to believers that false teachers have come into their church and trying to influence them, what? To move away from the true faith. I always think about John 6, 6, 6. John, John 6, verse 66. Um, after Jesus was speaking about who he was, it says many of his disciples, or you could put so-called disciples, withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. First John 2.19, one of my professors used to quote this. Somebody would get up and go to the bathroom and he would quote this. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out from us so that it would be demonstrated that they were not really of us. Right? First John 1 John 1.9 There will always be Judases among us. Right? Those that are close to the Lord, that seem to have excitement. Right? Judas, it was a surprise. When they were, all, when they were doing the Lord's Supper, and they were all dipping the morsel into the shared bowl that would go around in the Lord's Supper, they were all asking Jesus, is it I that's going to betray you? They had no clue it was going to be Judas. They had no idea. Judas lived among them. He was one of the twelve that didn't walk away until the very end. There will always be Judas. There will always be the lore of the world. And then there's a continuing hope. He looked down in verse 23. He says, You're not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which is proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, was made a minister. Paul goes on, he's describing the gospel. He says, You're not moving away from the faith. You're, you're firmly established. You're not moving away from the gospel that, that you've heard. He said, First of all, it's the hope of the gospel. He said, Don't abandon the true gospel for false teaching. Don't abandon the true hope for a false hope. Right? What is hope? Hope is the confident assurances or confident assurance in the promises of God. It's not subjective, right? Our hope doesn't change. First Peter says we have a, a living hope, right? We have an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It cannot and will not change. Hope is not based off of circumstances. It doesn't ebb and flow. It's hope. And not only that, it's an assurance. It's a confidence. It's a hope in the future. In fact, I love what it says. I go back to this over and over. In, for, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 3, excuse me, verse, uh, verse 5. Well, let's start at verse 4. Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, verse 5, because of the hope 
for you laid up in heaven. They, their motivation for love for each other, their motivation for continued faith in Christ is their hope, their fixed hope on what awaits them in the future. That should be our motivation as well. Right? Gospel of Jesus Christ gives us hope. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives the world hope. A world that is born into sin, that loves a sin, that the mind is in darkened and futile. The gospel gives hope of reconciliation. Praise be to God. He said, he continues, he said that you've heard it. Not only do you have the hope of the gospel, you have, you've heard the gospel. You've heard it from Epaphras. Paul sent Epaphras out from Ephesus to this valley. Epaphras was a fellow Colossian. He said, you've heard it from a fellow Colossian. You've heard the gospel. He affirms that. He said, they responded to faith in Christ. And then he says, it's proclaimed in all creation. Paul's using hyperbole here. He's saying, look, the gospel is everywhere. Praise be to God. He's, you can see he's just overflowing in joy. He's like, he said, it's proclaimed in all creation. Right? Luke actually says something very similar in Acts 19. He says, all Asia has heard the word. Just showing how the gospel itself is going forth. In fact, Paul's opponents, uh, the silversmith, Demetrius, says Acts 19, he says that, that this word they teach is going out to the entire world. Paul's using hyperbole here. He's saying, look, the gospel that you've heard, it's just the same gospel that's going everywhere. Praise be to God. And then Paul kind of finally just kind of sums it up at the end. He says, look, I was made a minister. The word minister there is the same word that's used over in verse 7 of Colossae when he talks about Epaphras. In the NASB it says, who's a faithful servant. The word there, servant, is minister. Right? Epaphras was a faithful minister of Christ, and Paul's a faithful minister. He's a, he's a minister of the gospel. He's a servant of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? That's what we are. We're servants of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, we've heard the word, we've been reconciled to God, and now we have the ministry of reconciliation. And I was reading the other day that the frontal lobe of the brain gives us the capacity to look ahead. That animals don't have this capacity. And we can also delay our gratification. And they, and they figure this out because people have injuries to the frontal part of their, their skull and their head. And you can live with damage to the frontal lobe. What they found is that the patients that have had damage, they, they, they can't delay gratification. Right? They want it now and they want it now and they will not wait. It's kind of like, you know, Christmas is coming. The best part of Christmas is the what? When you're a kid, the weeks leading up to Christmas. Right? All the things that you imagine that you're going to get and the fun things that you imagine that you're going to do. Right? Part of what's exciting is what's coming up. Right? You think about you and your wife or you and your husband, you're going to a nice steak, beautiful steak restaurant in a week. Right? The thoughts leading up to that, your mouth watering, you think about how good it's going to be. Now, it might not live up to your expectations, well, the expectations are there, and you're delaying that gratification, right? You could either go tomorrow or a week. Most people will choose, well, I'll wait a week. That's how you enjoy thinking about it for a week, right? It's kind of like Rachel and Jacob. You think about Jacob. He loved Rachel so much. He was willing to work for her for seven years. And the Bible says they were, they were like a day because he was in, so in love with her, right? Believers, you have the hope of the gospel, Christ has reconciled you, and one day you will be in perfect fellowship in His presence. Right? You have something to look forward to. Right? We live with the hope of what we have in the future. Right? We've discussed your past state today, your present condition, your future destiny, and your present duty. Brethren, I just pray that you will continue in the gospel message that you've heard. Remember your hope and don't be distracted by this world and all its enticements. Overcome Satan by remaining steadfast in your faith. Overcome sin by obeying the Word and the power of the Holy Spirit. How we live now demonstrates the reality of our reconciliation. Right? If you say you are a believer, then live for Christ. If you're here and you aren't a believer, know that you can be reconciled. 
that ultimately you are separated from God and you have no hope to escape the wrath of God. Your only hope is to fall on your knees, confess your sins, and humble yourself and believe that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin, that He bore the wrath of God in your place like that sacrificial lamb that He is. You trust God alone and His grace alone for salvation. Then you can have hope that is secure and will not shift and will not change. It's the hope of a promise that we will stand before Him holy and blameless without reproach. Praise be to God. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we we thank You for Your Word. Lord, what a great passage of Scripture as we read about just what we were and what You've done and the glorious hope of the Gospel, glorious hope that awaits us. Lord, help us to fix our, our, our eyes and our minds on the hope that we have, to not be allured away by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and this pride in our hearts that we all struggle with. Father, renew our minds. Conform us to the image of Christ. Lord, I pray that we would walk with you this day and that we have a good and godly week. In Jesus' name, amen.